2: Why are we doing a show about the Postal Service? That's a fairly good question. Some of it started because I was giving a series of lectures at the University of Hartford about the kind of the history of news and the history of the notion of information being moved around. And, and I realized that the Postal Service is kind of the unsung part of that story when we think about information moving around. And, and in fact, there's an argument that the earliest newspapers were made possible Not so much by movable type, but because of the development of reliable postal service. You can move something like a newspaper around from place to place. And particularly the the Thurn und Taxis uh, German Postal Network was one of the things that kind of made the idea of a newspaper possible. And then you start thinking, well, what are the other things that are possible because we have a postal service? In the second segment, we're going to talk about some of those very, very small Post offices, particularly here where we live, that often are still kind of the center of community life, and maybe even the way a community names and defines itself. And some of them are quite endangered because of downsizing. So, um, if that's if that's you. Maybe get ready to give us a call in the second segment. Right now, we're going to talk to Winifred Gallagher, author of several books, including How the Post Office Created America. She's contributed to numerous publications, including The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, uh, and The New York Times. And this is a terrific book. I'm going to maybe, uh, Winifred, have you begin with just telling us a story. Part of the story of the, of the U.S. Postal Service and the foundations of, of postal delivery in America is that... There wasn't really any infrastructure to use <laughs> when they right. started trying to do this. Maybe a little bit different from what happened in Western Europe. So uh, in 1704, a very intrepid woman named Sarah Knight uh, decided to accompany on the Boston Post Road, although that's, there wasn't really any road, uh, but to make a trip uh, between Boston and New York with a postal carrier. What did she find there? What did she find in terms of just what it took to get mail from one place to the other?
1: Well, yes, as you point out, it was it was called the post road, but it was really more like the post trail. Sometimes, in some places, that it was actually evolved from old game trails uh, then that Indian hunters used. The, the so-called road was broken in many places. Uh, if a community didn't feel like improving the road, it wasn't improved. There were there were no bridges or means of getting across sometimes raging rivers. Mm-hmm. So poor Sarah Knight, it took her about two weeks to make the trip that you could make today in, what, three and a half hours in your car it was extraordinarily difficult. Of course, the post rider that she followed, uh, the reason why she followed him was because the post riders employed by Great Britain at the time, of course, we were just colonies. They also doubled as travel agents, so to speak. So if if you were um, going from one place to another, it behooved you to go with a post rider who at least presumably knew where he was going. They were also uh, obliged to keep an eye out for runaway slaves.
2: Right. So they, it was sort of a, a, a multi-service industry and as the Post Office and Postal Service continued and continues to be in a, in a lot of ways. But I mean, it also gets to the title and, and the partial premise of your book, which is it, they didn't use existing things, the Postal Service. They caused things to exist. They caused um, sort of standard routes. whether we're talking about the northern colonies in 1704 or the westward expansion towards California. There wasn't something for them to use. Again and again, they made those things, correct?
1: Yes. All over America, the post office was the there there. When there was nothing but like a little, perhaps two paths crossing in the wilderness somewhere, and a couple of settlers decided that they were going to farm there, their first shot at getting a place on the map would be to petition their congressman for a post office. For most Americans, for a very long time, their only address was their post office. Street addresses didn't evolve until much, much later in the 19th century. What people don't often realize that really until World War I, the post office was the federal government. It was the federal government's biggest, most important function, most popular function. So really the thing that intrigued me about the institution was not so much just the history of the post office, but the history of the post office is the history of America. It really did Create America. First of all, politically, Benjamin Franklin, who was our first Postmaster General, for 20 years before that, he was England's Postmaster General, one of two in the colonies. And he had the vision of uniting these 13 very fractious, very uh, almost hostile colonies in terms of each other. They were all just fighting for Mother England's attention. He had the unusual, then, experience of traveling to all 13 colonies, which was a nightmare. It was much easier to Mm. travel from Boston to London than from Boston to Virginia. But Franklin did it, and he began to see that these colonies that thought of themselves as autonomous really had much more in common than they had with some country back in Europe. And he presented... His plan for union at the Albany Conference in, in 1754. So this is more than 20 years before the Declaration of Independence. He sat down with very important colonial leaders and said, "Let's pull together. We don't have to just do it for defense against hostile Indians. We we have certain things in common, and we should have a kind of colonial government." Of course, Britain put the kibosh on that pretty promptly, but it shows you that like the the whole postal idea really set off, first in Franklin's mind and then in in the fellow patriots, the idea that they were somehow could be a unified force.
2: Right, there's a, a great passage in your book where Franklin is musing on the fact that there's kind of a an irony in the sense that the Iroquois nations are much more, way more united over the ages uh, than these thirteen putative outgrowths of uh, of the old world. And, and so, once again, to have a postal service is to talk about uniting these otherwise independent, uh, autonomous uh, units. And, and I would assume also to have a postal service ultimately, uh, there's a democratizing process that goes on. Although my sense is, early on in the history of any postal service, it's initially used as a form of revenue generation. Therefore, the coal heaver and the cooper are maybe less likely to use it than people who have money.
1: Absolutely. And that's what made our post office so extraordinarily revolutionary. It was it was fully as a revolutionary as the Revolutionary War itself. Because in 1792, once the Constitution was safely ratified, the founders, including uh, Benjamin Rush, notably also James Madison and Washington, uh, were determined to do something extremely radical in the world that horrified European nations. They wanted to create an informed electorate. Back in Europe, the the government told the people what they were allowed to know. But our founders realized that if a democracy was going to work, the people had to know what was going on. They had to know what they were voting about. So they decided really to prioritize the delivery of newspapers, as you alluded to in your introduction, not letter mail, newspapers. And they were uncensored. So if we look at our... <laughs> Uh, to use a polite term, uh, our lively, uncensored, contentious political culture today, this was by design of the founders. We were meant to be arguing and fighting over political ideas and then voting on them. So once you decide, all right, the government is going to make sure that people have access to newspapers, how do you do that in, in what was basically a wilderness uh, except for a, a thin band of civilization along the, the East Coast, of cities along the East Coast, it was woods and prairies. And how are you going to get the newspapers there? So the post office had to, now that it's transforming our political culture, it had to transform the wilderness into this social landscape of post roads that went to villages that were centered on post offices.
2: Right. Um, and, and so, but you have, I mean, to this day, in my household anyway, we regard this whole thing as still kind of miraculous that you write a few words on an envelope, it, you stick something that's not very expensive onto the envelope and you put it somewhere and it goes 4,000 miles. I mean, it just, to this day, it's when, extraordinary. <laughs> when Sherry, our mail carrier, come, comes up the driveway, we're, we're like really excited. <laughs> this is like a really big day for us. And so then what you, happens is that the federal government becomes a means of moving information that not everybody wants moved so that you you can put a stamp on a pamphlet or a newspaper or something else up in Boston, uh, uh, espousing abolitionist activities or just in general pointing out that slavery really sucks, and mail it down to Virginia, and the federal government will take that in the information down there. And not everybody appreciated that, right? No, some people. Listen. Oh no, yeah, absolutely go ahead. not.
1: Those those pamphlets were were uh, burned in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, which was a federal crime. And the postmaster called his boss, Amos Kendall, who was Jackson's postmaster general, and said, what am I supposed to do? And Kendall, a very clever man, just kind of temporized and said, well, you know, you must deliver the mail. That's, you, you must deliver it. On the other hand, the community's sensibilities must be taken into consideration. So he just kind of hum and hum and hum. In the meantime, some vandals broke into the post office and seized the mail and burned it. But also, interestingly, even though Jackson was, of course, a slaveholder um, and a southerner, the post office continued to deliver uh, abolitionist materials to the southern states. And then the southern states basically did what they wanted with the materials. Mm. But even even Jackson's uh, administration did not say, no, you don't have to deliver the mail.
2: Um, I can hear the mail train uh, right there in the background going by, although I think it's Larry O'Brien's fault that it's not a mail train anymore. I should
1: have mentioned, actually, when when we were talking about, so how do you get the newspapers there, a very, very crucial thing that most people don't realize. The post office, really through through aviation, almost especially aviation, has subsidized the nation's transportation grid all the way back from the days of the post riders through the stagecoaches, the railroads, the airlines. It was really a wonderful example of government and private industry cooperating instead of squabbling. The post office paid the transportation contractors to carry the mail. The post office single-handedly supported our aviation industry from 1917 or 18 well into the late 40s or early 50s when commercial passenger flights first became tenable. It was the post office.
2: Right. I want to get back to those contractors in a second because there's some amazing stories about them and you're a great storyteller, but we're going to skip ahead a little bit. I mean, there's just no way we can cover all the ground that's in it's your book.
1: 240 years. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> but, so, one of the really interesting figures in your book is uh, a gentleman named Montgomery Blair who I believe starts out his life uh, as a Democrat, a nationalist Democrat, but then the slavery issue flops him over to being a Republican. Lincoln taps him. And, and explain who he was as postmaster general. Well, the
1: Blairs were very prominent family. In fact, uh, Blair was a was a brilliant man. He could have easily been Secretary of State or, or war or some other office, but he served Lincoln. And he u- he did a wonderful thing. He used the power of the Civil War. He, he found a way to take the hit as a gift. And because the post office no longer had to pay for the entire South, which was now had its own separate postal system, it had enough money to start experimenting with some real postal innovations, the greatest of which was railway mail service. Well into the 1930s, most of America's inner city mail was carried and sorted, processed, on rapidly moving trains. We had wonderful mail service. If you had good rail connections, you could drop a postcard to your friend in a in a town four or 50 miles away asking him for dinner. He could reply back and you could have dinner on the table. Mm-hmm. It was extremely efficient. So uh, Blair found the money to put most of the mail on trains. He also found a way to invent the postal money order system so that Union soldiers had a safe way of sending their salaries back to their families. Bear in mind that for most of history, the post didn't just carry letters and newspapers; it carried things like money and wills and, and all kinds of valuables. Imagine having to stuff like $500 in an envelope and hoping it got there. And most people didn't have banking services, so postal money orders were huge. It started out for the Union Army, and then expanded, you know, into all kinds of other regular commercial purposes.
2: Right. You, you use the term, and I think you know, correctly, just in the history of civilizations, the reliable postal service is a sine qua non. If you can't do it, you don't really have a functioning state for the reasons you're saying right now, right? You've got to be able to move stuff, stuff of value, stuff of significance around in a reliable way.
1: Myanmar does not have a, a postal system, I'm sure. They don't have a, a delivery system. We have this incredibly valuable Infrastructure, 33,000 outposts of the federal government all over the country. The post service goes to almost every address in America almost every day. So let's say there was a terrible biological problem and the government needed to disseminate medications and and vaccines. We have that infrastructure. It exists. Right. It's the bedrock of democracy.
2: Hey, I want to say one more thing, or have you say one more thing about Montgomery Blair. One of his other innovations involved who works uh, for the Postal Service.
1: Oh, yes. He was very broad-minded about uh, women in Postal Service, women in American life in general, have done very well during national crises when there aren't enough men to do the jobs. It's starting with the Revolutionary War, actually. And during the Civil War, Blair did an extraordinary thing. He he had postal clerks. We think of a clerk now today as, as kind of a not terribly important job. But back then, clerks were crucial boost before typewriters and all kinds of things. And being a postal clerk was a very good, very well-paid job. He had women come in and work in Washington at the headquarters as postal clerks, and especially in the Dead Letter office, which was one of Washington's leading tourist attractions because if you put something valuable in the mail, and the address was imperfect, and some of them are really hilarious how (laughs) imperfect they were. If the post couldn't deliver it, that envelope was sent to the dead letter office where highly skilled clerks, many of them women and clergymen, because women and clergymen were thought to be more moral (laughs) uh, and and, uh, better suited to opening envelopes with valuable things in them, Uh, The postal uh, clerks would try to uh, decode the addresses and get the uh, contents to the appropriate party, and they often did.
2: The other group of people who gain employment here uh, through um, this this gentleman, Postmaster Blair, are are African-Americans, right? They get their uh, government jobs uh, first shot at some of those.
1: The African-Americans certainly got a big boost after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Um, and not just letter carriers. I mean, in fact, if anyone has seen the movie Glory about the African-American troops in the Civil War, the guy who grabs the flag and holds up the flag and star of the show, so to speak, um, was a letter carrier, Mm -hmm. actually. Um, So African-Americans also had very prominent executive roles in the post office right after the Civil War and until the horrors of the turn of the 20th century when Americans' race relations really hit absolute bottom. And the post office was resegregated briefly under Woodrow Wilson's administration.
2: I want to fling us back out onto the frontier where you you do have these people who are essentially action heroes. Some of these contractors who are delivering mail are action heroes. They're colorful. I want you to tell just briefly the story of stagecoach Mary Fields, who sums up some of this intrepidness.
1: Yes. Mary Fields was a six foot two very strong, powerful African-American woman born in the South in slavery who went West with some Catholic nuns to help them set up a mission and a school in Montana. And she was a very popular figure. She gave candy to children, but she also liked to um, to have some drinks, and uh, she didn't back out of fighting, and she carried a big rifle, and she was kind of a two-fisted character. And she got the bishop, the local bishop, she aroused his ire, and he he told her that she could no longer work for the Catholic Church, so the nuns got together, moved her out of town, got her a, a wagon and a horse, and she became a postal contractor.
2: So she carried
1: she carried the mail from the railroad station to the post office in her wagon. So she was actually a she was a mail a mail person.
2: These were exciting figures to people, the fact that they were, you know, out there doing this incredible work and doing it often at the highest speeds possible.
1: Oh, the pony riders were sort of the Justin Biebers of their communities. (laughs) They were young kids, as the perhaps apocryphal ad said, orphans preferred Mm -hmm. because the job was so dangerous. They couldn't weigh very much. They were slight, sort of like jockeys, really. And they were absolutely fearless, and they were um, the sweethearts of their towns, like the girls would gather around when they came into town, even try to pluck hairs from the horse's manes and tails. And there's a a story that the donut was invented by a girl who was smitten by the local Pony Express rider because he needed a snack that he could eat on the run. So I guess the idea was that you stuck your finger through the hole and kept on galloping. (laughs) The interesting thing about the Pony Express, which was really not it was not run by the post office it was a private mm-hmm. uh, enterprise it, it only lasted 18 months but it helped capture the power elite of the east coast their attention and the whole world's attention on the american west and midwest which until then had been kind of not celebrated but once once people saw what these what the pony express could do with just these very plucky guys on on horseback doing these fearless uh, feats just to get the mail through. It, it just captured the whole world's uh, attention and intrigued everybody with the American West
2: and Gallagher, I'm going to do one more historical great leap forward here because we would be remiss if we didn't at least get to this part of it. And it's interesting because the names Larry O'Brien and Dick Nixon are linked historically in another way through Watergate. Obviously, it's the bugging of O'Brien's office uh, that's part of the Watergate story. Uh, but they're linked in a different way, too. Larry O'Brien is LBJ's postmaster. He's starting to look at the fortunes of the post office and arguing for maybe thinking about it a different way. And so from O'Brien to uh, Dick Nixon, we get the birth of this new creature, the USPS, which is neither fish nor fowl. I think you call it a jackalope. Tell us how that uh, came to pass.
1: Well, as you point out, O'Brien, was not he wasn't LBJ's postmaster general because he had a great interest in the post office. He was the president's political fix, fixer. And since the days of Andrew Jackson, who invented the spoil system that you're alluding to. The postmaster general was the president's political fixer, became a member of the cabinet and basically appointed his own party members to postal jobs. It's, it's extraordinary. So in other words, the party who won the White House could dispense tens of thousands of patronage jobs to their followers. And Nixon, to give him credit, said, this is no way to run a railroad. You can't, no wonder it's not operating in a businesslike way. Uh, this is crazy. And he depoliticized the post office. He and his, his postmaster general, Wynton Blunt, and signed the, the, uh, the Postal Act of 1970, which I think arguably went too far in turning the post office into a, a self-supporting business. Uh, People should know that not one single dime of your tax dollars goes to the post office. Right. And that is because of Nixon. And he also, the other important thing the act did was he allotted funds so that the post office could finally be modernized. The the mail volume by mid-20th century had doubled, but the post office was still stuck with using equipment, a lot of which Benjamin Franklin would have been familiar with because the post office had been deprived of funds by two world wars and the Great Depression. The federal government didn't give it any money to retool and modernize. So Nixon did two very good things.
2: Right. I should also say, I can't remember whether I read this in your book or someplace else, that I think O'Brien is also, unfortunately, responsible for kind of pulling the mail off the rails a little bit, and, and which also argues on behalf of your premise, but in reverse. It actually, I think, hurt passenger rail service, uh, ultimately, for the mail to stop being— He didn't being have
1: paid. much choice. By the time—you know, the big cities had these fabulous, what I call, postal palaces that were built usually around the turn of the 20s, uh, you know, the 1880s, 1890s, uh, into like 1910, that were built next to railroad. Because that's where how the mail moved, but a lot of these cities were old. My own hometown, Philadelphia, the streets are narrow. Once the culture shifted from railroads to cars and trucks, uh, it became extremely uh, difficult to maneuver big semi trailers into the old post offices, and he really had no he had no choice. Once America went automobile, that system that had worked so beautifully. From the Civil War into, like, say, 19, the 1930s, 40s, the technology had changed, and, and uh, it was no longer functional. Now those big postal centers are right off superhighways, and the big trucks zoom in and zoom out. It's a, it's a different world.
2: We're going to have to stop there, although this is just fascinating, such fascinating stuff. So, you know, a must for Christmas giving uh, would be Winifred Gallagher's How the Post Office Created America. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today.
1: Thank you. It was a
0: great pleasure.
2: And we're back. Um, I have there's two things that I need to tell you. I should have told you earlier, and they're related to one another. Uh, one of them is you know you may have noticed all week long we've been doing pledge breaks during our show. We're not gonna do that today, although if you felt so motivated, you could call one 800 584 2788 and make a pledge, or go online at WNPR.org and click donate now and make a pledge. But we're not doing that today. And the reason we're not doing it today is because we're offering this show in a different format, one that we call Radio for the Deaf. Uh, If you go over to the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page, uh, you'll see this show interpreted in American Sign Language by our two exquisite uh, interpreters uh, here, uh, Mary Sue and Sarah. Uh, That's been going on for the entire show. You you could start it from the beginning if you wanted to so. uh, If you know somebody who uses ASL, um, this is uh, a a great thing for them to try. And I think this is a great show for them to be doing this on. All right. So those are the two things I needed to tell you. Uh, Now we're going to talk to Evan Kalish, a self-proclaimed postal tourist and creator of Postlandia, a photo journal of post offices and places uh, Evan has visited. Well, I'll let him tell you, actually. He is determined to visit uh, all 33,000-odd post offices uh, in the United States. Let's find out uh, how close he's coming so far. Evan Kalish, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, thank you for having me.
2: So what's the tally right now? Where are you at?
3: Uh, yeah, I just updated <laughs> my spreadsheets. I'm at 8,676, and that includes locations across all 50 states so far.
2: And, and what prompted this? What made you want to do this?
3: It, it's not something you just you start doing, saying, oh, I'm going to wake up and visit uh, 200 post offices today. It was rather organic. Um, I've lived in the Northeast and went to college up here my entire life. And, uh, well, after graduation, I wanted to explore the country, and I found the post office to be a great way of getting to know communities that I wouldn't otherwise get to visit.
2: It's also, I assume, because, in fact, this is a number of post offices that is shrinking rather than growing. There's a curatorial aspect to what you're doing.
3: Oh, sure. At first, it was to document my own experiences. But then, uh, yeah, I figured if you put enough elbow grease into it, it could become a a bit of a historical record. And uh, I have been to about a couple hundred post offices that have since closed, and I'm thankful to have visited them while they were still active.
2: Why do postal offices typically close?
3: Oh, well, they've been closing... Well, they've been opening and, and closing since the beginning of the Postal Network, um, but, but there are a few reasons, say, today. Um, a couple of common examples include what are called emergency suspensions. So um, you might think the Postal Service owns most of its locations, but in fact, most are leased from private entities, and um, if in a small town there's a uh, an infestation of mold or maybe a leak in the roof, and if that doesn't get fixed, it's quite possible a location will close. And there have been a couple of examples of that in, in Connecticut in recent years.
2: You know, you, what are those? Do you, I, I, you have an encyclopedic memory for <laughs> post offices, I know.
3: Yeah, It's like playing Scrabble against mm-hmm. someone who's memorized the dictionary, I, uh, I like to say. But um, yeah, so uh, Tariffville and yeah. Yantic are, are two recent examples in Connecticut. But there are other reasons that post offices might be relocated or might otherwise close.
2: And we should talk a little bit more about this. And by the way, I did invite people, but I'll invite them again. Uh, If you live in a place where the post office is uh kind of a, a center of life an important thing or maybe an endangered thing feel free to call in at 860 278 7266 that's 860 278 7266 we should talk a little bit about what it means when the when a post office closes closes or what oh did i say it wrong uh 275 <laughs> 7266 i don't have the number in front of the 860 275 7266 uh, so don't call that other number. I'm really sorry to whoever else that number belongs to. 860-275-7266. All right. So um, these these post offices, I mean, they're – well, I don't know. I, you could probably tell your own favorite stories. I know – I remember reading one of your stories. There's a, a postmaster who can tell who's entering the store without looking, right, just like from the sound of how they enter the room and go through the door.
3: Oh, sure. Just like, you know, if uh – Who's coming into your, your own home if you have roommates? Uh, yeah, everyone opens the, the door in a different style. But, the, yeah, everyone's got their own patterns. Uh, postmasters uh, can be you know deeply ingrained in, the, in the, the social aspects of their communities. And uh, the post offices can really be social hubs. Uh, the communities um, can lose a lot, uh, and uh, at worst, their identity when when the post office closes.
2: I we also have this idea that mail carriers um, sometimes notice things, uh, people who aren't picking up their mail or whatever. I mean, how how, how real is that story, that, that just by having people who are delivering mail going up to doors and stuff like that, the world is a somewhat safer place?
3: Sure, I mean, the, the, yeah, and there are wonderful, dedicated people throughout the postal service, and many are carriers. If you, if you follow, there are actually websites that aggregate postal news stories. Yeah, you'll, you'll see on a frequent basis um, A person, you know, somebody fell and couldn't get up, and then the first person to notice was the carrier, who realized that the mail was still at the front door.
2: Um, Yeah, Yeah. go ahead. I I wanted to get you to tell a few of your stories. They're really great stories. Uh, This is a story with kind of a sad ending, but tell us about the the post office in Applause, New York.
3: Oh, no, no, that was just the pun. The town was actually called Alplause. They called it a round of applause. Ah, I got it. (laughs) No. Um, oh, goodness. Yeah. That, um, I, I was really honored that the community invited me up. Uh, because They they knew they were slated to close. The, we won't get into the reasons for that now. But uh, yeah, it, uh, the post office had been in the same location for about 100 years. Uh, everybody came there on a daily basis. It was a town where, where you walk. It was just a, a main strip. The postmaster knew everybody. And um, yeah, I'm I'm really disappointed to hear that, that the building was recently demolished. Residents say that the community just does not have the same feel since, uh, since it closed.
2: And it, it was, uh, I mean, looking at the pictures on your blog, it was a thing of beauty, that post office.
3: Oh, and so many are, Absolutely. Yeah, that, maybe, that maybe. So many have local touches that are wonderful.
2: We should talk a little bit about that, too. Um, that um, some of the buildings, probably uh, particularly ones built maybe during that kind of golden age of postal construction, are architecturally gorgeous. A lot of them have kind of New Deal era art in them, too, right? Can you tell us about that?
3: Sure. And in Connecticut, there are actually a couple dozen examples of that um, that are quite fantastic. Um, so it was um, as part of a New Deal initiative. Um, yeah, FDR, you know, wanted to to bring construction, wanted to put construction dollars out into the economy, so meant, uh, there were about 2,000 post office buildings, uh, I, that's a rough figure, mm-hmm. um, that were contracted out, and uh, and if the building was constructed on budget, um, a slight bit of money was put aside, and that was put toward decorating the building, uh, artists um, sought commissions for those, and uh, yeah, there are... There more than a thousand uh, murals and sculptures that, uh, that are around to this day. And they're wonderful to visit. A, great, a couple of great examples in Connecticut are New London, which has um, a largely wraparound mural from the perspective of being at the center of a whaling boat, and Norwich has a great one nearby there as well.
2: Um, So, yeah, another reason to keep a uh, post office open uh, is the fact that there might be some irreplaceable uh, art wrapped right into it. Um, Let's hear from John in uh, East Woodstock. Uh, Hi, John. Hi, Colin. Um, Thanks for
4: today's show. This is uh, fascinating stuff, Uh, at least it is for me. Um, uh, So I live in East Woodstock, Connecticut, which is a part of the larger Woodstock, which is the second largest town in the state of about 68 square miles. And we're really spread out, and there really is no town center. We're very rural. But when I moved um, to East Woodstock, the first thing I did was go about a half mile down the street to a very tiny little post office and got a post office box. And it it is kind of the center of what's also known as East Woodstock Village. It's been threatened many times with closure, and they built a more central Woodstock uh you know, post office, it's very, you know, cookie cutter and so forth. But this is a little general store type sp- space, and with a, a, a postmaster that's been there for about 20 years, Norma. And it really does, it is a place where you meet people um, in, in in the community. And it's strange because it's a small town, and yet it's a very large town. And I'm sure out in the Midwest and out in the West, there's a lot of that as well. But but for us, it's really kind of an identity thing that we're from East Woodstock, not North not Woodstock Valley, not South Woodstock, East Woodstock.
2: And that's somehow that's really important
4: to me. Um and and it it really made me feel a part of the community when I moved in there.
2: Yeah, uh, well first of all, I, um I can tell you that Evan has been to the East Woodstock post office, not because I know that specifically, but you've pretty much hit uh, everything that Connecticut has to offer, right Evan?
3: Yeah, every so there are, um, as of this year, there were 303 post offices in Connecticut. I've been to 302 of them, one of which, uh, there's one post office on the, sub, on the sub base north of Groton, and you need, uh, you need to be sponsored to get on there. But otherwise, I've been to every single one. And yeah, East Woodstock is lovely. Uh, we have a photo of that uh, up on our website and at 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 an archive that I manage.
2: Um, you know, he's making an inter- interesting point, too, and I don't know how com- common it is outside Connecticut, but I can tell you that as somebody, as like early in my career as a newspaper reporter, one thing I realized is that in Connecticut, there are places like East Woodstock or Hamburg, or or they're places that, um, in fact, don't really, they're not incorporated towns, they don't really exist geographically so much as they have a post office, and that post office has a different name from the geographically and legally incorporated town, right? A post office can sort of be the identity of a, a very small place.
3: Oh, absolutely, and that is true all across the country.
2: Um, I wanted to, speaking of all across the country, I want to talk about some of the places that you've been in. Probably, well, almost definitely, the most intrepid post office visiting you've done uh, has been done in Alaska. And sometimes you have had to go to great lengths just to get to where the post office is. I'm going to let you just pick out your favorite of those Alaskan post offices and, and just tell us what it took for you to, to get to it.
3: Well, I'm hoping for more future adventures uh, next year. Uh, Alaska is a fascinating postal network, and they have an institution called Bypass Mail, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, but um, so many of the post offices and communities in Alaska are not on the the road network. Mm-hmm. You have to either take boats out there, so you can either take a cruise ship to get to quite a few of them, or you have to fly, and in many of these communities, they cannot support anything more than uh, than a very small plane. So I was very... Honored to have visited a, a handful of such uh, such communities last year, and uh, <laughs> the results were quite fantastic. And they gave me tours. Um, one great example is a town called Nanwalik, which is a native community but also has Russian Orthodox roots. Um, yeah, I, I got driven around on the gravel roads uh, on a guy with, with an ATV who took me to the post office and, and the variety store and showed me their church and, and the cemetery. And the airport there is quite fantastic because... Well, the runway there is, is not straight, so <laughs> it, it makes for really, really—I I thought it was a really fun landing. Um, but yes, yeah, so, some might not mm-hmm, yeah. might not have the stomach for that. Um, I also had the the pleasure of taking a, a mailboat out to a town called Halibut Cove, and the signage on that building is, is absolutely wonderful. It is a building that is physically attached to a dock. In fact, the address, the quote address, has you know like dock on it or landing on it. And it, the the building and dock physically rise and fall with the tides, which can be quite extreme, kind of like uh, the Bay of Fundy. And uh, I, w- I was very honored to have a, t- a tour of that as well. Um, that there are communities all around Alaska that, that are similar um, along the Arctic Ocean, Bering Sea, and a couple of them uh, will actually need to be relocating in a couple of years due to changing sea levels. So uh, I hope to visit a couple of those before it happens.
2: Um, we should say that uh, Evan, uh, among other things, puts out a calendar. There's a 2018 calendar uh, out of uh, oh, some yeah. of his favorite post offices, including, I think, the two Alaskan ones that you just mentioned are both featured in that calendar.
3: Well, just the one, uh, Halibut Cove. Halibut Cove. I, I try to feature 12 different states, mm-hmm. so there are there are various fascinating, well, well, either architecturally fascinating places to visit or just places that deserve to have their stories told. And uh, yeah, I. I, I I hope people enjoy the calendar. Um, I featured twelve such stories, uh, including one very bizarre place uh, that's on a woman's ranch in Nevada. The, the The post office is in a little wooden shack that you, you might confuse it for an outhouse, and and there's no address on on the roads for for miles around. So finding that was was quite an endeavor. So yeah, I hope I uh, the experience of just uh, of just viewing the photo is uh, is more convenient than uh, than it was to actually get out there and find it. <laughs>
2: Uh, people are tweeting, LB is tweeting. Shout out to Bloomfield, Jerome Avenue, postal clerks for being the most uh, nice and efficient and friendly uh, postal clerks around. People often do, despite all the stuff you see on TV, uh, people often do love their post office and their postal uh, clerks. And, um, you know, before we get to um, Megan from Bolton has a call about the East Windsor Post Office, which I know that you, yeah. are, you also know. Before we get to that, though, Evan, one Point that I think is worth making is that because people forget this, a lot of posts. I almost bought a house in North Canton, Connecticut, that had a post office on the property, and I guess I was going to be responsible for. Like, I, I went in there, and the postmaster said that she wanted a new roof. <laughs> I hadn't even bought the house yet. But a lot of post offices are on private property, or they're in pharmacies that could conceivably be sold, or I mean, they're they're on they're not necessarily on property that the government owns, right?
3: Right, they are leased facilities, and. Um and, and yeah, and if uh, and if you own the house and you don't put a new roof on it, and if there's no other suitable site in the community for a post office, um, yeah, the post office uh might discontinue the lease, and the post office could uh could close. It, it's ha- yeah, it's happened uh in many places around the country. So that's part of the reason why the numbers are are diminishing.
2: Uh, let's hear about that uh, East Windsor post office. Uh, I, I know it's linked to on your side as well. But here, here's Megan. Hi, you're on the air.
0: Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm calling, actually, I want to um, clarify, I'm calling about a post office that is in South Windsor, but it is in the East Windsor Hills section. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it to be, uh, the, I, I think it's the oldest or one of the oldest post offices in the country. And, that, and several years ago, I rented an apartment that was um, in the same building. I'm not sure if your guest has been to that post office.
2: He's been to all of them except Groton. So oh, East Windsor so yes. Hill is fantastic. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah. yeah. so it was. It, I just um, I appreciated your commentary about how the historical implications around these buildings, and um, the East Windsor Hill uh, post office is located in um, you know a, certainly a historic part of South Windsor, but it really. Um, you know, brings back, uh, you know, bygone era when the Connecticut River was used for business and those sorts of things. So it was, like, really, really a pleasure to live there.
2: Um, You know, I do, first of all, Megan, thank you so much for that uh, phone call. Um, With a little bit of time left, uh, um, I I do want you to mention a a few of the other places you've been, the things that you've seen, Evan. I mean, for example, some post offices aren't in a fixed location. They're on a boat. Tell us about Lake Winnipesaukee.
3: Oh, goodness, yeah, there are a couple of um what they call floating post offices, and you can actually take a ride on one, the mailboat Sophie C. Uh, it, it makes mail stops on several uh, little islands every, uh, every day during the summer. And, uh, yeah, it's quite delightful. You can, you can mail packages, you can buy stamps and, and get snacks and just have a wonderful morning or afternoon out on the water.
2: There's a um, a post office you feature, uh, one of the tiniest ones ever, in Ruby Valley, Nevada. That one uh, is yeah. so obscure-looking, you didn't even know it was a post office at first, I think. Oh,
3: yes, Ruby Valley. Yeah, and that, that is the one I mentioned earlier that's in the calendar. Uh, yeah, it took about an hour and a half to, to find that thing, because Ruby Valley is not a community so much as a 70-mile-long valley, <laughs> and it took quite a while to figure out exactly where on the on the road with no addresses, and in fact, even what road the building was on, uh, yeah, before I could uh, find it. uh, I actually had to go on a a couple of people's ranches uh, and and just call out, hello, is there anybody you know, within five miles of me here who can help me find this. It was quite an adventure. And, and there's so many wonderful stories to be had all around the country.
2: Yeah, and that building looks more like a tool shed to me than it looks like a post office. But, exactly. Um, you could drive by it five times and not know it was a post office. Um, yeah, I, I mean, pretty
3: much did. That's pretty much factual.
2: <laughs> so Evan Kalish, it's been so great talking to you, uh, the creator of uh, Postlandia. Uh, we will link to uh, Evan's stuff uh, on our page at wnpr.org slash Colin. Uh, uh, we got to take a break right now. I'm started Dave and Jean, those look like great calls, but uh, if I don't break now, we won't uh, actually hear from the think tank of the post office itself, or the USPS as it is. You
3: are
0: the best. You are the best. Never you Never ask. You are the best. Would rather receive a dead letter from newman or sit next to cliff clavin at a bar for two hours today's show was produced by betsy kaplan and me kione wolf amanda fish is on the two cent stamp the part of bill curry was played by mr zip on tomorrow's show the nose goes to see the last jedi and now back to colin
2: All right, so uh, there are many ways in which post offices can and probably must change. The USPS is constantly thinking about its future. Maybe one of the ones you might have heard a lot about uh, is the whole idea that maybe post offices could begin offering kind of non-bank financial services uh, instead of going to expensive uh, check cashing uh, places uh, or payday loan places. Maybe you'd go to your uh, post office and get some financial services. But there are a lot of people, well, some people anyway, at the USPS who are thinking in lots of other ways. Uh, about what else the Post Office could do with this incredible infrastructure uh, it has. Amanda Martinez, uh, market research analyst at the United States Postal Service Office of Inspector General uh, Risk uh, Analysis Research Center is uh, joining us now. Uh, And uh, first of all, uh, thanks for joining us, Amanda.
5: Thanks for having me, Colin. It's nice to hear when people are excited about the Postal Service and interested in its history.
2: Yeah, no, we're very uh, excited and very interested. So so you, you're kind of part of a, what, a kind of a mini think tank that is thinking about the future of the USPS?
5: Right. You could think of us like that. So the Risk Analysis Research Center is part of the Postal Services Office of Inspector General, which is a separate agency that's tasked with ensuring efficiency and accountability and integrity with the U.S. Postal Service. And then our component uh, conducts research and analysis on postal issues to identify different areas of opportunities for potential revenue growth or operational efficiencies.
2: So as we've said a few times on the show today, the amazing thing, one of the, ma- one of the amazing things about the USPS is the, just the amount of ground it covers and the fact that it basically goes up to just about every uh, house in, in the United States. So that's a tremendous advantage. One of the things that you've looked at is, so, so what else could you do? For example, you could possibly use those same mail trucks to help neighborhoods by what, equipping them with sensors to, to notice other problems?
5: Exactly. As you said, the infrastructure is massive. So there's over 200,000 postal vehicles. These vehicles are driving um, to almost every address in America six days a week, uh, total something like 1.2 billion miles a year. Uh, So we've done some research to say, okay, how can we leverage this infrastructure? Uh, One of the more immediate ways is to equip coastal trucks with sensors. And this is a strategic focus. This is a potential area for strategic focus. Uh, Like I said, it's mostly uh, conceptual research because Internet of Things technology and sensor technology is still in the developing stages. Uh, But some of the concepts that we explored were this idea of having sensors on the vehicle fleet that could detect the air quality in cities, that could gather data on traffic patterns or signal strengths of TV or wireless services or even do some pothole mapping or road conditioning, road conditioning data.
2: Um, another thing that I think is fascinating you're looking at is uh, the, the mailbox on the user's end, right? That could be a smarter mailbox?
5: Exactly. With the technologies that are emerging, there's definitely a potential to explore the idea of a smarter mailbox. So this goes back to the Internet of Things as well, whereas we're making physical objects smarter. Uh, The mailbox was designed a hundred years ago. It's a hundred year old design. So we looked at ways that it could be updated for the digital age. Um, there's so many benefits to doing this. There's revenue opportunities for all the data that these mailboxes could gather if they were equipped with sensors. Um, you wouldn't have missed deliveries anymore if they could be delivered to a locked mailbox instead of just left on your doorstep. Um, And then there's opportunities for new services, such as grocery delivery, if these mailboxes were also um, insulated, for example, and could monitor temperatures.
2: Um, I'm very attached. We're very attached to our mail carrier uh, where I live. But the future seems to include, in general, robots and driverless driverless cars and drones. Uh, I assume the future of the USPS includes those things, too.
5: Well, we've looked at that in our research, for sure. I mean, you can't ignore these technologies that you see companies all over the world experimenting with. Um, We did uh, some research on drone delivery, mainly looking at the public perception of it, because you see a lot out there in the media about drone delivery and safety concerns and um, commercial concerns and uh, the opportunities that it has to improve the customer experience. But we tried to gauge the public's perception of that and say, is the public ready for this technology? And what we found is that the more familiar, the pub- or more familiar customers are with the technology, the more they like it. But it still receives a mixed um, reception because people are unsure of the safety of drone delivery.
2: Right. And I guess the other part of this, and I know this is something that you've looked at, is that a human physical mail mail carrier could also be equipped with sensors or or some kind of wearables to, to pick up and quickly transmit information about the kinds of things that we've been talking about.
5: Right, exactly. If um, we've looked for one of our research projects, we looked at smart cities initiatives. So some of these initiatives that uh, cities like Chicago and Boston are doing are they're taking mobile applications and empowering citizens citizens to collect data of what they see um, in their daily lives. So if there's um, a leak, a water leakage, or a pothole or a sidewalk is in disrepair, or a tree limb is down. But if you think about the carrier, that's everywhere, six days a week. This is something that potentially carriers could input into those systems as well.
2: Um, how? I, I, this is a really. I've got a minute left, and this is a vast question. But I, I'm assuming you're looking at what other countries do too. Uh, for example, there are other countries, Amanda, that, that are experimenting with postal drones.
5: Right. So we did a little bit of background research before our public perception survey of drone delivery, and we found that There are a lot of posts around the world that are experimenting with this technology, and the applications range for so many different things. A lot of them are trying to see how drones could help them deliver to -to hard-to-reach areas, especially mountainous areas that get snowed in, or islands, especially in Finland, where it's hard to get to even with boat in the winter because of the ice. Um, And then, of course, in emergency situations as well.
2: Um, Amanda Martinez, this has been a a great conversation. Amanda Martinez is a market research analyst at the USPS. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I want to thank Betsy Kaplan for producing this very creative show today. I certainly want to thank uh, Mary Sue and Sarah who are here interpreting the show in uh, ASL. We are going to keep that broadcast, Radio for the Deaf broadcast of this show up on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. That's where you'll find it. You can start it from the very beginning, or if there's somebody you know who could benefit from this, who might enjoy it in ASL, that person. You can start it from the very beginning on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. All right, thanks for listening. And our number, 860-275. I can't do it right anymore. <laughs> All right. Well, you can pledge at wnpr.org. Click on Donate now. I'm not going to give the number because I'll screw it up again.